should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to commonwealthclub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is Evan Lowe, and I serve as the assembly member for this region. And so, hello to each and every one of you that I work for. It is my pleasure to introduce Van Jones, CNN political contributor and host, best-selling author of Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart and How We Come Together. Van is recognized for pioneering his work on advancing social justice with the issues related to the green jobs movement. He was instrumental in creating the social equity track for the United Nations World Environment Day 2005 Summit. Also passing Oakland's Green Jobs Corps proposal and working with the United States House of Representatives to create the Green Jobs Act. In 2009, he was appointed Special Advisor for Green Jobs, Enterprise and Innovation to the White House Council on Environment Quality. Since leaving the White House, Van has co-founded several thriving nonprofit groups, including the Dream Corps with its Yes We Code and Cut 50 initiatives, the latter to help reduce our prison population by over 50% over the next 10 years. He is the recipient of numerous honors, including the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader and has been called one of the 12 leaders who gets things done by Rolling Stone magazine and 12 Most Creative Minds on Earth by Fast Company. I'm sure we will see much more to come of Mr. Jones. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in giving a warm Silicon Valley welcome to the Van Jones. Thank you, man. Oh, that feels good. That is good for my self-esteem. 
So you're lucky you're not a politician. You don't get a round of applause just by walking on a stage like that, too. <laughs> there are I'm some other thresholds. I'm keeping that in mind. <laughs> well, welcome to Silicon Valley, Van. It's great to see you here. Glad to be here. So tell us, what did we liberals in Silicon Valley do wrong? <laughs> um, well, I am first just glad to be here. Um, this, this book has been... Um, it emerges out of a particularly, I guess, interesting journey in my own life. Um, I was born in a small rural town in a red state, uh, public schools and church and all that, but I wound up at Yale for law school. And that was uh, my first kind of experience of how different things can be in the same country. And then I became a grassroots activist outsider in the Bay Area, uh, but then I became a White House insider for Obama. And then while I was working for President Obama, I became a target of the media because of my left-wing berserkly background, which I'm quite proud of. Uh, um, and then uh, having been a target of the media, I'm now a part of the media. Um, I'm African-American, my wife's not. Um, I, I've kind of been on a whole bunch of different sides of a bunch of different things. And um, I was one of the people who early on was pretty clear that Trump had a really great shot at winning. And, you know, as early as June uh, 2016, I was screaming that this guy had a real shot. I posted a video, so you think I'm making this up, where I basically got every state right except for Wisconsin in June with no polling operation, no uh, focus groups, no big data set, just you know, talking to people and understanding the, our vulnerabilities. And I felt like my progressive sisters and brothers just weren't listening. And it was, he can't win, and it's impossible. And, and, and you know, I have in my house these small unemployed people I don't know where they came from, <laughs> but I've noticed that every time we take them to a sporting event that they're participating in, when they say, we're going to win, this other team is trash, they always get beat. I mean, it's not, it's, there's never been a time they predicted an overwhelming crushing of a team. They always get beat. And then afterwards, I've noticed these same small, ungrateful people <laughs> also have the same reaction after they get beat. The other team sucked, the referee cheated, the turf was messed up, Comey, the Russians. I mean, it's just... <clears throat> and, you know, you have to let them have that, you know, for a moment. You know, because they're upset, they're hurt, it's bad. But if you're a good parent, or a good grandparent, on the car ride home, you've got to start to ask the question, okay, look, I get it, I get it. The other team is terrible. But was there anything we could have done differently that would have helped us to win anyway? It has been now two years since Donald Trump came down that escalator. And we are still in a state, as progressives, of upset, and turmoil, you know, he's ADD, and now we're ADD, you know? Uh, he's 
crazy and, and petty and mean, and now we're kind of like crazy and petty and, and going, and he, so I thought maybe I could share in the book some of the perspective that I got on the campaign trail afterwards, you know, I went to uh, tr the, the, the homes of Trump voters be before the election was over. And I've been to West Virginia, I've been to red parts of Indiana, red parts of Michigan. And I think I saw some stuff that I thought would be helpful. And my basic view is that you don't get an outcome like Trump if you have two healthy parties. You don't get an outcome like Trump if you have one healthy party. <laughs> that both of these parties suck and <clears throat> have fallen so short of their best ideals so often that the proper response is, again, in this book, it's, it's a tough love letter to both parties, asking both parties to step it up. And then the last third of the book is really just a bunch of resources for ordinary people. Because I think ordinary people have, are more depressed than they should be because I think we have the wrong analysis. I think ordinary people think the mean people, the bad people, are doing too much mean bad stuff, and that's true. But that's actually the minor problem. The major problem is that the good people, the well-intentioned people in both parties, by the tens of millions, just don't know what to do yet. And so I'm trying to help solve that problem, give us positive stuff to do, ways to move forward, this Trump slump that we've all been in now for two years. Uh, if we continue, if we don't make some adjustments, if we don't get our heads wrapped around it, we could be looking at eight years of Donald Trump and then Ivanka will, will run, and you know at that point there's really no reason to go on. So <laughs> I, I, I wrote the book to try to avoid that fate. Sure. So you're alluding, to, or actually not even alluding, you're just saying foul out that the party apparatus is not necessarily suitable for what we currently see in existence. And in fact, uh, case in point, we are seeing the emergence of organizations like Indivisible. In fact, we have here Orchard City Indivisible. Mm -hmm. We have groups, you can see them there right there. We have uh, <laughs> South Bay Swing Left uh, also organizing and ensuring that we are going to congressional districts and ensuring that there is that type of engagement. And in fact, the voter registration is significantly higher in Democratic registration, and yet you're still seeing Republicans hold those particular seats as representatives. And so, your, your advice yeah. on the resistance movement, mm -hmm. what would you say, what kind of advice would you give for the resistance? Well, you know, I would give two bits of advice that might sound contradictory. Um, on the one hand, I would say, keep resisting. Because there's some stuff, look, we're just gonna have to fight on some stuff in America. And I wanna be very clear about that. I'm not a, a kumbaya guy. I'm not a Pollyanna person. Um, I'm not going to, and none of us in this room are going to turn our back on Muslims, American Muslims, who are being persecuted. We're just not gonna do that. We have to fight about that. Um, and, and I always take a moment to say this, by the way, because it's not said enough, but American Muslims are like the best Americans that we have. If you actually look at them, they have, listen, this is, this is objective. I'm a Christian, so it takes a lot for me to say this. But they have the lowest crime rate. They have the lowest divorce rate. 
They have the highest, uh, one of the highest rates of educational attainment for women. They have one of the highest entrepreneurship rates. Um, every Muslim you know has a job or a college degree or a business. Um, why are we supposed, I don't get it, why are we mad at them? Oh, they say because of terrorism. You have to be mad at the Muslims because of terrorism. But the majority of terrorists are not Muslims. So <laughs> I don't understand why we're supposed to be attacking some of the best Americans that we've got. We're not going to turn our back on immigrants and dreamers. Look, LGBTQ folks, as long as they had to wait, we're not going to turn our back on them. And by the way, you, you, you've got a president. You've got a president who, when it was time for him to serve his country, said his footsie hurt five times. My footsie hurts um, and didn't go serve. And now he wants to attack transgender war fighters. I'm going to tell you guys right now, if you're waiting for Van Jones to put on a uniform and go fight terrorists, you're gonna wait a long time because I'm scared and I'm not going. If anybody wants to put on that uniform and defend this country, we are gonna support them to the hilt, no question, no result. So, I mean, you can walk through. I'm proud that the progressive movement has finally, unapologetically, brought into the circle and built a circle of folks who have been crapped on and mistreated African-Americans, women. You go through the whole list of folks. And when, unapologetically, we used to go, yeah, we're kind of for you, but shut up. Now it's like, no, we're for you and speak up. And I love that. So part of my thing is keep fighting. But the other part of it, as proud as I am of the circle that we've drawn, I think it's fair for us to admit, admit at least among friends, that we may have drawn the circle a little too small. That there are, and I've met, and I talk about it in the book, I've met people who are straight, white, cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian males in red states who are truly extraordinary, good people, and who are hurting. I've met coal miners who, whatever we, look, I'm a clean energy guy. I'm an environmental guy. I'm not talking about the coal industry. I'm talking about those miners. I'm talking about those individual workers who went down in those holes and they risked their lives and their lungs to keep the lights turned on for me and you. And they come back out of those holes with black lung disease and the coal companies cut them off of health care and throw away their pension dollars. And they're sitting out there hollering. And nobody was listening from our side. I've met people who, uh, you know, worked in factories, worked in mills. Those jobs went away. Now they've been unemployed for a long time. Some of them are addicted to painkillers. We didn't speak aggressively to some of those folks. We got so good at including the people who've been traditionally left out that some of the people who are newly left out didn't feel they had a home in our circle. There's nothing wrong with us saying that we're not, we're not gonna erase our circle and build a new one, but we're gonna keep this circle and grow it so that more people feel like they have a home with us. If we have a resistance that sticks up for everybody in the country that's hurting, and it doesn't say, well, you, know, you have to uh, be an anti-racist, anti-sexist uh, you know, ally of ours, or otherwise we don't care if you die of black lung disease and we don't care if you got, no 
No, no, no. That's not uh, a beautiful resistance. A beautiful resistance would be a, almost a revival or a renewal of that commitment that most of us came into the world with, that everybody counts and everybody matters, and we want everybody to have a good life, and, and we're not going to leave anybody out. If we really come with that, I think we're, it makes it very hard for these neo-Nazis and other people to recruit. But I think if we go the other way, and we say, all right, you voted for a bigot, you are a bigot. You voted for a sexist, you are a sexist, and, and you're wrong. The problem with that is, some people voted for Donald Trump, they held their nose. And they're just, they're Catholic, and they just have a hard time on the abortion question. Just like some people voted for Hillary Clinton and, and held, held our nose. And, but once you tell them, or you say that you know, your stepdad voted for Trump, your stepdad is a bigot, once you tell them you are morally depraved, vote for me. <laughs> That's a tough sell. That's a tough sell. And my concern is you wind up feeding what you're fighting. We wind up feeding what we're fighting. We wind up building a coalition for Trump that he doesn't deserve. I don't think Trump deserves 60 million votes or 6 million votes or 6 votes. I don't think the Trump children should have voted for that guy because they know him. So <laughs> I, I, I literally don't think he deserves more than one vote. And so I want us as a resistance to be able to fight in a way that, me, that, that means we don't give anybody to them, we fight to get everybody back home. Sure. Van, uh, very well said. Uh, I, I think there's a great sense though that we as progressives stand on facts. We believe in science. And when we talk to some of these individuals, it seems to not be one of those characteristics or traits that resonates with some of these voters. In your experience, how do we have that conversation with them when we say, well, let's look at what the facts show us? Well, this is one of those things that liberals say that um, helps Donald Trump. Because we love to imagine ourselves as these hyper-rational, Spock-like beings, you know? <laughs> that just sort of float above all emotionality and just, you know, look at scientific data to make our decisions. And we're the most crybabyist, emotional, <laughs> sensitive people on the face of the earth. But, we, you know, we hide, you know, behind all this sort of like rationality because we're, we're, we, we're we, I mean, we'll cry at the drop of a hat. And so, first of all, in reality, facts matter, and you know what? Fe feelings matter, too. Facts matter, and feelings matter, too. And sometimes we get so smart on the facts that our, emotionally our emotional intelligence, our emotional intelligence goes in the toilet, and you're never going to win with that. So let me just point out some hypocrisy on our side, just to be you know, clear. It's not just the Republicans that pick and choose their science. On, on, on climate stuff, which we love, because we're so right on that and they're so not, we love that one. You know, we just beat them to death with it, you know. Um, but I got a lot of progressive friends, including myself. I don't want to eat any GMOs. Now, the scientists tell you it's perfectly fine, and we say, 
kiss our butt. We're not eating it. We don't want it. We're scared. It's frankenfood. But the scientists say it's not. We have a lot of you know, liberals and some conservatives who are now saying that they're never going to vaccinate their kids. Well, you know, science over and over again says, you know, vaccinations are not causing the autism, et cetera, et cetera. We don't care. So you've got both sides picking and choosing science. And, but I'll tell you why the, my conservative friends are very resistant on the climate stuff. It's because the conclusion you would then have to draw is that the government's going to get really involved in the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the government's always involved in energy. You know, the, I mean, how many subsidies do the oil companies have? But the conclusion is so anathema to them that they don't rush to that answer. But it's deeper than that. Their view of us is that we are smarty pants people who think we're better than them, who have one more thing we want to beat them over the head with and be right about and make them wrong. And nobody is going to consent to be dominated by a group or a politics that doesn't respect them. And the liberal cause is in danger now of constituting ourselves in such a way that people who should be with us just emotionally can't be. And I'll tell you why I say that. And people get so mad at me, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody here. But if you listen to the way that liberals now talk about the red states and the voters and the people in the red states, it is hard to find the love or the respect. And in fact, we sometimes sound like colonizers discussing a third world developing country. These backwards, ignorant, unwashed, uneducated idiots that the, what is wrong with these people, those people? You know, what we need to do, we need to, we need to convert them to our NPR religion, you see. <laughs> and we need to force feed them some kale, you see. <laughs> and then when, you know, they, they, they get brought up to our level of civilization, then we'll be able to talk with them. But in the meantime, that's how colonizers talk. And people tend to resist colonial projects. And so we sometimes are feeding what we're fighting. So what I would say is the idea that we're rational and they're irrational, the idea that we pick science and data and objective stuff and, and they, and they are, are easily duped and misled, there's some truth in there, but the truth is messy. And what we really want to deal with is the emotional reality, which is, why don't we say about climate, you are a Rust Belt industrial heartland laid off worker. I want you to have a job. If we had a clean energy revolution in this country, you would never go home from work because we'd have to build wind turbines, smart cars, smart batteries, solar arrays, literally you would have more work than you could possibly do repowering this country with clean energy. Oh, and by the way, we might not have all these floods and fires. Why don't we just have some emotional intelligence in how we talk with people as opposed to beating them up about some scientific survey, which honestly, 
I don't understand either when I read them. <laughs> like, I kind of read these climate reports, but I really am not a climatologist, but I'm a liberal, so I'm for them, right? <laughs> so since I'm not really that smart myself about this stuff, maybe I should be a little bit more humble in the face of their uncertainty and a little bit smarter in how to get them on our team. Very good. Uh, your book was also published before the rally of the neo-Nazi events and the tragedy in Charlottesville. Uh, and in your book, you refer to it as the dirty right versus the alt-right. Uh, could you help elaborate a bit on that? Um, I don't think we should ever call these people the alt-right. Um, there's nothing right about them, uh, and they are uh, what I, in Europe, you would call them the dirty right. The, the, there's a distinction in Europe between the clean right, which just has, you know, from my point of view, really bad ideas, but are not bad people, versus the dirty right, which traffics in authoritarianism and violence and anti-Jewish uh, sentiment and, and racism and sexism. Um, the dirty right in our country uh, has a foothold now in the party of Lincoln. The party of Lincoln is on the way to becoming the party of Bannon. And you know, that is uh, you know, cause from my point of view, it should be cause for great concern for conservatives. But I don't call them the alt-right. That's their attempt to rebrand themselves. They are white supremacists, they're white nationalists, they're neo-Nazis, um, and they are a threat to our democracy. And they have no place in any legitimate political party. And w what I say in the book to my sisters and brothers who are conservatives, I'm not asking you to stop being a conservative. I don't want you to come over and join the Democratic Party. If you, if you are a conservative, true conservative, and you, know, you don't believe in women's right to choose, and you're scared of multiculturalism, and you don't like Muslims, then stay in the Republican Party. I got enough problems in my own party. You stay over there. <laughs> but be a conservative, but vote for better Republicans than the ones you've been voting for, and stand up for your actual principles. No conservative should allow Russia or anybody else to come and mess up our democracy and not say a word about it. No conservative <laughs> should, you know, no conservative should be happy when the President of the United States starts poking his nose into private business and telling the NFL or corporate media what to do. That's not in our Constitution. So I'm saying be a conservative but be a better conservative, be a stronger conservative, and vote, and vote for Republicans. Listen, people say, Van, why do you go to talk to those red state voters? What are you talking to those coal miners for? They're never gonna vote for Democrats. They're never gonna become anti-racist allies. I don't even expect all that. I just don't want them voting for Nazis. That's, I mean, maybe that's a low standard, <laughs> but that's <laughs> you know, a worthy effort um, on our part. And to the extent that we don't uh, uh, engage aggressively in that outreach, uh, I think we have a big problem. Listen, uh, we've got a beautiful circle. We've got to grow it. The only job you have when an authoritarian takes over your government, which is what happened, and your democracy is on the line, as it is, is to grow your coalition and to erode his. You don't get to freak out every day and call that a strategy. You don't get to wake up every day, l reach for your cell phone, 
turn it to your face, and then just have a terrible day, <laughs> and then go back to bed. That's not a strategy. That's not how you deal with this. And so, you know, for me, um, I expect a lot more from progressives than we've been showing up with. Um, uh, there, some people say Donald Trump is crazy. And there seems to be some evidence <laughs> to back this claim up. I'm not arguing against it. But there's another form of insanity besides narcissism. And that's doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different outcome. Since this man came down the escalator, you have been doing exactly the same thing every single day for two years, freaking out and insisting that he's a crazy bigot who shouldn't be in office. I agree, you, there, you can make the case. The problem is, that's what we did for the year he ran, that's what we've been doing for the year since he's been in there. If we keep doing the same thing the same way, we may be looking at eight years. And so I am tough on progressives because I think it's all on the line. And I want us to look in the mirror, if there's one thing we could do differently, or maybe even two, or maybe even three, that will give us more power, more energy, more confidence, de-inflame some of the people who voted against us last time. We should do those things. And that's why I wrote the book. Ben, certainly uh, we in California like to think that we are the blueprint uh, for the resistance and that we in California uh, have a greater opportunity to make significant change. In the legislature in California, when we're talking about bipartisanship or working across the aisle, that indeed did happen. Yeah. And in fact, in California, when eight Republicans supported a cap-and-trade bill with the Democrats, immediately thereafter, the Republican leader was ousted uh, from his leadership position. Uh, Steve Bannon was here in California uh, just a few days ago talking about that the party needs to be more Trump-like. And that's on the right. And similarly on the left, uh, there was an issue with respect to single payer, uh, to which members of the legislature, majority of the legislature and the speaker said that we want to have a thoughtful approach to this issue and that we did support it, but we need to have a thoughtful approach to it. As a result, uh, some individuals now have threatened and pushed forth a recall effort on the sitting speaker of the California state legislature, a Democrat. So we see this movement on both sides, on the left and the right, and so for policymakers, the institution and governance is also very fragile. And so while we talk about this partnership, what kind of advice or suggestions, insights might you have for such an occurrence? Well, you know, it is it, very difficult uh, for people who've never been in government to understand how hard it is. Um, when I was a grassroots activist, I was a walking nightmare for anybody who ran for anything. Um, if you were the dog catcher, I was going to hold you accountable for imperialism uh, <laughs> because, well, here you are. So, um, and I understand, you know, people are hurt, people are upset, people are scared, people want real change, people need real change, um, and people are energized 
on the left and on the right. And the strength in, our, in both parties now is in the wings of the party. It used to be the strength was at the center of the parties, and the left wing and the right wing were the little parts. Now the strength is in the wings. It's the left wing of, of our party and the right wing of the Republican Party that has all the energy and momentum. And that makes it very, very tough for people who are actually trying to govern on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to, do, to, to, to make uh, considered judgments about what's, what's feasible and what makes sense given the votes that you got, and then to turn around and you know, deal with a very, very energized base. Um, part of the reason I wrote this book is because I think that the best thing in the country are the people who are energized. But I don't think that we've been having the right conversation among ourselves. I think that we have invested too much confidence in the politics of outrage and accusation and confrontation. And anybody who's known me is like, I can't believe Ann is saying this, <laughs> given what a confrontational lunatic you were <laughs> uh, when you were running around here as an activist. Um, but, you know, I, um, uh, I, I, I think that, I think we sometimes underestimate the heroism of our cause um, as Americans, as uh, progressives. But let me just point out how hard this is, this, this, this commitment that you've made, many of you, to um, human rights. Don't call it left, don't call it right, just call it human rights. You live in a country with 300 million people. 300 million people. Every color, every faith, every class, every gender, every sexuality, every human being ever born, all in one country. And we mostly get along, honestly. That by itself is a miracle in human history. Don't underestimate that. For 10,000 years, it was perfectly appropriate for us to you know, say, we're in one tribe, the people on the other side of the hill are another tribe, we're gonna go and chop them up into small bits. Um, that was perfectly appropriate. You've got countries right now that got two ethnic groups in them, and they fight all the time. You know, I go to those countries, I'm like, you guys can't get along with two? <laughs> you got two. I'm here mediating with two. Uh, you know, it, it, you got 27 languages spoken in Oakland school, City Schools alone, alone. So what we're doing right now is a miracle in human history, and it's very hard. And what happened to us, I believe, we got in that Obama bubble bath. <laughs> for eight years, and man, it felt good, you know. <laughs> we were like, we done made it, you know. And then we got up, and we were wet and wrinkly and weak, and we're not prepared to fight anybody because we said, hey, we thought this thing was over. Um, and so now we're just outraged, and we're outraged at everybody, and we attack each other. Uh, I mean, you know, you get, drug on Twitter for the slightest infraction. You can't go to a conference now. Somebody says one sentence wrong, they're gonna be torn apart. Um, it's an unhealthy culture now. And we are, uh, there's a psychological, emotional issue that's coming up for us, man, and we never wanna talk about that. I mean, this book, as much as anything else, is a self-help book, as much as it is a political book. I'm serious, because most of us who are progressive, you know, we're real sensitive people. I mean, and we've been that way. I mean, since we were little kids, 
I mean, little kids walking around, you know, in homes that were dysfunctional, seeing people being bullied in our neighborhoods, seeing people being mistreated, and other kids in our family didn't even notice it. And we're the ones that, you know, we cried more for the kid that was getting bullied than the bullied kid was crying for him or herself because this is who we are. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, we're women, we're people of color, we're LGBT, we're, we're Jewish, we're Muslim. We, you know, there's deep pain and trauma that we carry just walking around. And, we, and, we're, and we're open-hearted about it. So that makes us very vulnerable. And then all of a sudden you look up and the bully wins. The bully, the bigot wins. And it has regressed a lot of us to almost childhood, like childlike levels of frustration and helplessness and fear. Because this is going down to some deep core wounds for each of us. And what I just want to say is, I get it. Don't forget, I was one of the first people that the right wing came after with this stuff. I get it, and I had to go through it. But what I discovered for myself, I was stronger than I knew. I was stronger than I knew. You know, they, they, this wasn't like, we don't like black people. This was like, we don't like Van Jones, you know, <laughs> for three years on Fox. And I had to discover in myself that I'm not a child. You know, I'm a big person. And I'm not going to let these people steal my joy. I'm not going to let these people, you know, make me, you know, fall into some kind of a uh, you know, helpless frenzy every day. Uh, there's too much at stake. And the people who came before us, you know, they put dogs on people. You know, they put fire hoses on people. They lynched people. They shot Dr. King in the face in front of his friends, and not one of his friends gave up. And now we can't handle a mean tweet. <laughs> we, it's like, oh, it's just too much. I just can't. How can I go on? I mean, <laughs> folks, <laughs> this is not that. This isn't terrible, but our reaction. We've been grieving and grieving. And just like when you've got somebody who's lost somebody, and I lost somebody. I lost one of my closest friends, you know, Prince, who died, you know, a year and a half ago. And some of us, I mean, we really went into some grief. But at a certain point, somebody's got to put their hand on your shoulder and say, you know, you can't just stay in this rut. You can't stay in this funk. You don't get these days back. And there's so much good that needs to be done. So in the book, you know, we literally turn people, here's what we can do that is positive, that's constructive. This opioid addiction crisis that killed Prince is also killing people in red states, in coal country. That's common pain. Common pain should lead to common purpose. Everywhere I've gone, the court system, criminal justice system, is a total wreck. And Republican governors have been fighting to reform the criminal justice system. Republican governors in Texas, Ohio, Georgia, have more in common with Black Lives Matter on prisons than either side has ever had a conversation about. That's common pain. should have common purpose. Everybody knows, especially here in Silicon Valley, that we're not preparing people 
for the jobs of tomorrow. Red states, blue states, white kids, black, Latino, Asian, Native American. We're not preparing kids for a, a world of artificial intelligence and, 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 and driverless cars and going to Mars. You know, the white walkers are coming and they're robots, you know? <laughs> so, you know, we can talk about the Mad King all day, but I'm curious about these white walkers. So at what point does the common pain lead to common purpose? Now, here's the deal. We can keep fighting. Here's, here's my, my plea to the whole country. From nine to noon, let's just fight. Let's fight about everything that's important. And then from noon to three, can we actually do something? Actually solve a problem? And then we can go back to fight for dinner. I mean, I'm not saying we don't have stuff to fight about. But beyond the battleground, there's got to be some common ground. Because democracies can fail. Democracies can fail. And they usually start to fail when it looks like this. When everybody's going tribal, there is no sense of common purpose anymore, the government's dysfunctional, that's when the demagogues and the authoritarians rush in. And I'm saying, if you're a true progressive, you have an opportunity and responsibility to try to de-inflame some of this stuff. It's hard to be smart when the temperature's up here. That's why Trump wants everything up here, so we're all as just you know, ignorant as he is. De-inflaming this stuff, using your yoga, <laughs> using your meditation, getting out them prayer beads, <laughs> is radical because it's the opposite of what Trump and Bannon want. Well, we, uh, the yoga will satiate us for a while, but then it's those tweets that just come <laughs> in. <laughs> it's like uh, constant bombardment. They're just sensations. <laughs> just sensations. Uh, going to some of the uh, questions from the audience, but uh, finally, let me ask you. We are talking to, I would assume, some uh, of those that are in the progressive movement here. Uh, but what would you say to some conservatives? How would you convince a conservative to read your book? You talked oftentimes about how you may be in opposition to 90% of the time with a conservative, but finding that 10% of the time, you also highlight former Speaker Newt Gingrich as someone who you work collaboratively with on such issues. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a conservative then? And we're talking to the messaging for how we can advance yeah. forward. What would you say? Well, I, I just think that the the conservative tradition at its best is a noble tradition and a necessary one in the country. Um, listen, I'm a liberal, I'm on the left side of Pluto, I'm proud of it, but you don't want me running your government by myself. Uh, you will be broke, <laughs> overregulated, <laughs> um, you know, because you need that push and pull with the conservative. You know, the conservatives always ask questions, you know, like how much does this cost and who's going to pay for it? You know. I never asked that. <laughs> I, 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 I said, you know, feed the babies, you know, God, help everybody. So, you know, you need that back and forth to come up with smart stuff. You know, you know that from college, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? That's, you know, I'm for government, you're for markets. We fight long enough, constructively, we'll come up with a public-private partnership that's better than your idea or my idea. That's how it's supposed to work. We've gotten so far away from that. We just do thesis, antithesis, thesis, antithesis, and then we go to commercial. And 
and try to sell you medicine that sounds like it's going to kill you. So <laughs> I don't think this is working. And so what I would say to conservatives is uh, respect your own traditions. I have a whole letter in there to conservatives. It says respect your own traditions, um, you know, respect religious liberty, uh, so quit messing with the Muslims, um, uh, fix your party so you don't have to cheat. It, it's really bad when you have to gerrymander everything so to win. Uh, we had 1.6 million more people voted for Democrats than Republicans in the House races. If you add up all the people who voted in the House races, uh, 1.6 million more people voted for Democrats than Republicans, but they still have the House because they gerrymandered everything. I said, why don't you fix the party? Don't fix the elections, <laughs> fix the party. So there's a lot of stuff I have to say to, to the conservatives, and I'm very proud, by the way, um, this book was the only, it's the only book in the marketplace. It's endorsed by Bernie Sanders. It's endorsed by Cory Booker. That's two wings of the Democratic Party. It's also endorsed by Rick Santorum and by Mike Huckabee on the Republican side. Um, and, and why is that? Why is that? It's because there's a level of respect, I think, that I've been trying to fight for on TV and behind the scenes to say, listen, we can disagree but we don't have to disrespect. We can disagree, but we don't have to disregard. I'm gonna fight you where I think you're wrong, but I'm not gonna go after your morals or your character. And just that, unfortunately, is important. Because right now, the grown people are flunking kindergarten. I mean, in kindergarten, you learn to listen, share. Like, we're not even getting that right. And so, just the fact that I meet a kindergarten standard means I got endorsement from both parties for my book. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, some questions now from the audience. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the Love Army, and how can I join the Love Army? Um, look, the Love Army, uh, you can join by going to lovearmy.org. Um, one of the things that I am very proud of is that when I'm speaking, I'm not just speaking as, as myself or as, as a pundit. You know, I'm a part of an organization um, called the Dream Corps. And the Dream Corps is located in Oakland. I got a chance to help found that organization. And the Dream Corps uh, is built to try to find really important solutions to really tough problems. We're working to close prison doors and open doors of opportunity. So the Dream Corps supports Yes We Code, it supports Green, green for All. You know, yes We Code is trying to get jobs and apprenticeships uh, for, for people from the hood in Silicon Valley. Uh, yes We Code is a very important, it's, it's uh, now the biggest scholarship fund in the country to help people from disadvantaged backgrounds get uh, computer science training. I'm proud to be a part of it. Uh, you can clap for Yes We Code if you want to. Um, uh, yes, we, yes, We Code is an organization that Prince and I started together, and so it's very, it's very precious to me. Um, Greens for All is working to get uh, solar jobs and, and solar opportunities into the hood. Uh, we have a, a criminal justice campaign called Cut 50. On, on that campaign, we work with Newt Gingrich and a bunch of conservatives because Republicans and Democrats actually agree on this. And we have the Love Army, and the Love Army is a campaign to try to bring, to, to try to fight fire with water. Okay, um, people. I want to fight fire with fire. That's a very good idea, unless the fire is in the nursery. If the fire is in the nursery, and everything you love and you care about is at stake, 
I would suggest you fight fire with water, that you try to fight hatred with love and understanding. And so the Love Army is, is a campaign uh, to try to bring that about. And again, not by throwing anybody under the bus. We're gonna stick up for everybody. But when we say everybody, we mean, mean everybody. And if you get the book, you can go to lovearmy.org and, and uh, become a part of some of our, our book clubs and other stuff. We need each other. People are so lonely, they're so isolated, they're so scared, so freaked out, and your, your phone is not helping. And so, you know, use your phone to connect with a real community that's trying to do something about it in the right way. Lovearmy.org. Uh, there were at least five cards with respect to this issue, and it's summarized in asking the question, what is the number one thing we can do to reduce the climbing prison population? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm so happy that, again, a third of this book is are just solutions. It's just solutions, resources, books you can read, documentaries you can watch on both sides, podcasts you can get on both sides, people you can follow on both sides, so you can actually get to some action and get out of this Trump slump. Um, but on criminal justice in particular, we have a whole section of, of great ideas. The most important thing I would say is that we need to start treating addiction as a health issue and not a criminal issue, across the board, across the board. Um, and, and we shouldn't just do it uh, for, you know, now that you know, some white folks are dying from opioids. We, if, if, if we're gonna have a compassionate approach with, an addiction, with this, this addiction crisis that's hitting rural America, we should have a compassionate approach for the addiction crisis that hit urban America, and we shouldn't mince words. When it was black and brown people who were addicted, we sent in SWAT teams and we built prisons from coast to coast. Now you have white people who are addicted and everybody wants to at least talk compassionately. Nobody's done anything, but everybody wants to at least talk compassionately. Let's extend that compassion across all you know, the, the country for everybody addicted and stop putting people in prison because they're sick. An addiction is an illness, it's not a crime. It's not a crime. Thank you very much for that. Uh, here is another question. You sort of alluded to it earlier. And uh, this question also went to Vice President Biden when he was here a few days ago. Now the question is, will you run for president in 2020? <laughs> Hold on a second. Hell no, I'm not gonna <laughs> run for president. And I'll tell you why. Um, there is a myth in this country that is so persistent, it's a lie, that we don't have good people who run for office every single time. We have good people in both parties that run, and we have good people in both parties that win, but they can't get anything done because of the gerrymandering, because of the big money, and because of the toxic media culture. And so my job is to try to clean up the toxic media culture. It should be safe in America. You, what you said to me about what's happening in California just broke my heart. The idea that a Republican said that we should have a clean energy future in California and, and lost a position, and the, the fact that uh, Democrats said uh, we want single payer, but we want to get it done right. Now listen. I might have wanted to go faster than you, but the idea that a difference in pacing on the outcome 
makes it impossible for us to stay in friendship and solidarity with each other, and somebody might get you know, recalled. That's the kind of stuff to me that breaks my heart. We've got to get past this I'm right and you're wrong American conversation. Every conversation in America now, I don't care, left, right, or center, has become simply I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. Or worse, we're right, they're wrong. We're not even talking to each other, we're talking about each other. That conversation, listen, sometimes it's true, but you've got to have that conversation alongside another conversation that simply says, I want to understand you, and I really want you to understand me. Whether we ever agree or not, I just need to understand, why do you think that way? What's happened in your life where you feel that way? Well, let me tell you about my life. Where's that conversation gone? When you have that conversation, even when you vote against each other, and we're gonna vote against each other, that's why we get to vote. You get to vote against people. Even when you vote against somebody, you don't have to hate them. You understand where they're coming from, even when you disagree. Now it's like, I can't understand how these people could think. Folks, I'm, I've been African-American almost my entire life. <laughs> it's true. For about six months, I was really into you two. Other than that, I've been black the whole time. No offense, Bono. But <laughs> when somebody says these people, those people, you people, they are dehumanizing you. And listen to how we're talking. You say, well, they do it to us. Yes, third grader, it is true <laughs> that sometimes the other kids are mean, but we're talking about your choices. Okay? And we're literally at that level of conversation now with the adults. I don't care what they do. I'm talking about us right now. And Dr. King said, no matter what somebody does, you never pull them so low that you hate them, that you disrespect them. You know, I can say all this stuff, you know, and I can say it from a deep place, and I mean it because I am a follower of Obama and her husband, okay? <laughs> and her husband. Don't leave him out. I'm tired of that. Don't leave him out. He had a role. <laughs> but when Obama, when Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. She was right then, she's right now, and I'm not gonna replace Donald Trumpism. I'm not gonna throw Dr. Kingism and Michelle Obamaism in the garbage can and replace it with some left-wing version of Trumpism. Uh, listen, he is not worth it. He can't even dance. Have you seen this guy at the, I mean, hey, I'm serious. I, once I saw him at the inaugural ball, do, that's how, you, you, you call that a, you dancing? Okay, look, I'm gonna tell you right now, you are too corny to steal my joy. I am way too sexy to have you have me looking upset all the time. I'm sorry, no. So, you know, at a certain point, um, you know, we just have to go on and be who we are. And, and we are not going to out-hate these neo-Nazis. We are not going to out-ugly Donald Trump. Listen, I hate to tell you this. I can look around. 
you guys suck at hating people. You're, you're, you're not even good at it. You, you feel miserable doing it. It's just, I mean, two years you've just been miserable. You know why? Because you suck at hating people. You're, you're too sensitive. You cry at everything. You can't go to a movie. You embarrass your friends. You are not going to out-hate these people. So let's try to win with some love. <laughs> We have time for one more question, and on the lighter note then, from, uh, again, an audience member. Give us some Prince wisdom. Uh, wow. Um, I miss him every day. He was amazing. He was amazing. And I tell you, probably the thing that he said to me the most often that meant the most People would, I mean, Prince would look at you the way a sober person looks at a drunk person most of the time. He's just like, <laughs> do you hear what you're saying? You know, like, because he was free. Prince was free. Uh, he did what he wanted to do. Um, he didn't understand what the rest of us were doing. And we would get upset about different issues or whatever, and he would always say to me, he'd say, Van, what do you want? What do you want? Okay, let's focus on that. See? What do you want? Don't focus on what that person said and that person said and this. What do you want? You want a country that works for everybody. That's what you want. You want a country where everybody counts and everybody matters. That's what you want. Let's just go get that. You get the future that you fight for. We didn't fight hard in 2016. We fought hard in 2008, we fought hard in 2012, and we laughed at this guy in 2016, and we got beat. It doesn't mean the country's terrible. 70,000 votes only out of 120 million. 70,000 votes in three states, that's all we lost by. 70,000 people who were for Obama jumped the fence, 70,000. And a lot of those people we weren't holding in the, in the first place. So what do you want? I want all 70,000. I want all 60 million to be with us. If we go for what we want, don't worry about what you don't want. Go for what you want. You will be unstoppable because you'll be beautiful, you'll be yourself, you'll have fun, and you'll be able to dance. And that's what the country needs right now. So. Uh, we hope you enjoyed tonight's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley, and we'd like to thank Van Jones, author of Beyond the Messy Truth. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.